Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Welcome to the 368th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we continue with part 23 of South with Scott by Edward Evans, and then we continue with part 12 of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's head to that white continent. Chapter 15. Return of the Last Supporting Party. Scott had already made a great geographical journey in spite of adverse weather conditions, which had severely handicapped him throughout. But he was nevertheless behindhand in his expectations, and although the attainment of the pole was practically within his grasp, the long 900-mile march homeward from that spot had to be considered. It was principally on this account that Captain Scott changed his marching organisation and took bowers from the last supporting party. After the first day's homeward march, I realised that nine hours marching day was insufficient. We had to make average daily marches of 17 miles in order to remain on full provisions whilst returning over that featureless snow-capped plateau. Although the first day northward bound was radiantly fine and the travelling surface all that could be desired, we were compelled to push on until quite late to ensure covering the prescribed distance for a short march on the first day would have argued a gloomy future for us. Reluctant as I was to confess it to myself, I soon realised that the seeding of one man from my party had been too great a sacrifice. But there was no denying it, and I was eventually compelled to explain the situation to Lashley and Crean and lay bare the naked truth. No man was ever better served than I was by these two. They cheerfully accepted the inevitable, and throughout our homeward march, the three of us literally stole minutes and seconds from each day in order to add to our marches. But it was a fight for life. The rarefied air made our breathing more difficult, and we suffered from shortness of breath whenever the inequalities of the surface became severe, and sudden jerks conveyed themselves to our tired bodies through the medium of rope traces. Day after day, we fought our way northward over the high polar tableland. The silence, now that we had no other party with us, was ghastly, for beyond the sound of our own voices and the groaning of the sledge runners when the surface was bad, there was no sound whatever to remind us of the outer world. As mile after mile was covered, our thoughts wandered from the expedition to those in our homeland, and thought succeeded thought while the march progressed until the satisfying effect of the last meal had vanished, and life became one vast yearning for food. Three days after leaving Captain Scott, we encountered a blizzard, and were forced to continue our marches although faced with navigational difficulties, which made it impossible for us to maintain more than a very rough northward direction. Muffled up tightly in our windproof clothing, we did all in our power to prevent the dust-fine snowflakes which whirled around from penetrating into the tiniest opening in our clothes. The blizzard blinded and baffled us, forcing us always to turn our faces from it. The stinging wind cut and slashed our cheeks like the constant jab of a thousand frozen needle points. This first blizzard which fell upon us lasted for three whole days, 
and at the end of that time we found ourselves considerably wide of our course. On the 7th of January, in spite of a temperature of 22 degrees below zero, a fresh southerly wind was driving snow. Lashley, Crean and myself laid 19 miles behind us. On the 8th, we again covered this distance, although the weather was so bad that we entirely lost the track, and on the following day, when the blizzard was at its worst, we fought our way forward for over 16 miles. When the blizzard eventually abated, and we had some hazy weather, but got an occasional glimpse of the sun which we corrected our course with, and on the 13th of January, my party found itself right above the Shackleton Icefalls and gazed down upon the more regular surface of the Beardmore Glacier hundreds of feet below us. To reach the glacier, we were faced with two alternatives. Either to march right round the icefalls, as we had done coming south, and thus waste three whole days, or to take our lives in our hands and attempt to get the sledge slap over the falls. This would mean facing tremendous drops, which might end in catastrophe. The discussion was very short-lived, and with rather a sinking feeling the descent of the great icefalls was commenced. We packed our ski onto the sledge, attached spiked crampons to our finesco, and guided the sledge through the maze of hummocks and crevasses. The travelling surface was windswept, and constantly too easy, for the sledge would charge down a slippery slope of blue ice and capsize time after time. In places, the way became so steep that our united efforts were needed to avoid the yawning chasms which beset our path. We were compelled to remain attached to the sledge by our harness, for otherwise there was always the danger of our slipping into one of the very crevasses that we were keeping the sledge clear of. And in this manner, with the jumping and jolting of that awful descent, frequent cases of overrunning occurred, the sledge fouling our traces and whisking us off of our feet. We encountered fall after fall. Bruises, cuts and abrasions were sustained, but we vied with one another in bringing all our grit and patience to bear. Scarcely a complaint was heard, although one or other of us would be driven almost sick with pain as the sledge cannoned into this or that man's heel with a thud that made the victim clench his teeth to avoid crying out. The whole forenoon we worked down towards the more even surface of the great glacier itself, but the actual descent of the steep part of the Shackleton Icefalls was accomplished in half an hour. We came down many hundreds of feet in that time. None of us can ever forget that exciting descent. The speed of the sledge at one point must have been sixty miles an hour. We glissaded down a steep blue ice slope. To break was impossible, for the sledge had taken charge. One or other of us may have attempted to check the sledge with his foot, but to stop it in any way would have meant a broken leg. We held on for our lives, lying face downwards on the sledge. Suddenly it seemed to spring into the air as we left the ice and shot over one yawning crevasse before we had known of its existence. I do not imagine we were more than a second in the air. But in that brief space of time I looked at Crean, who raised his eyebrows as if to say, What next? Then we crashed onto the ice ridge beyond this crevasse. The sledge capsized and rolled over and over, dragging us three with it until it came to a standstill. 
How we ever escaped entirely uninjured is beyond me to explain. When we'd recovered our breath, we examined ourselves and the sledge. One of my ski sticks had caught on a piece of ice during the headlong flight and torn itself from the sledge. It rolled into the great blue-black chasm over which we had come, and its fate made us feel quite cold when we thought of what might have happened to us. When my heart had stopped beating so rapidly from fright, and I'd recovered enough to look around, I realised that we were practically back on the Beardmore again, and that our bold escapade had saved us three days solid foot-slogging, and that amount of food. So we pitched our little tent, and had a good filling meal, and then delighted with our progress we marched on until 8pm. That night in our sleeping bags we felt like three bruised pears, but being in pretty hard conditions in those days, our bruises and slight cuts in no way kept us from hours of perfect contented slumber. I see in my diary for January the 13th, 1912, I have noted that we came down 2,000 feet, but I doubt if it really was as much. We then had no means of actually measuring. January 14th found us up at 5.45, really only 4.45, because in order not to make my seamen companions anxious, I handicapped my watch after first day's homeward march, putting the hands on one hour each morning before rising, and back when we got the chance, so that we marched from 10 to 12 hours a day. We hauled our sledge for six hours until we reached the upper glacier depot under Mount Darwin. Here we took three and a half days' stores as arranged, and after sorting up and repacking the depot, had lunch and was away down the glacier, camping at 7.30pm off Buckley Island, fairly close to the land. Temperature rose above zero that night. Next day we were away at 8am with our crampons on. We still came down several steep ice slopes, blue ice like glass, Lashley hauling ahead and Crean and I holding on to the sledge. We bumped a lot, and occasionally the sled capsized. But we made nearly 22 miles. We covered between 18 and 20 miles on January the 16th, and were in high glee at our progress. We camped, however, in amongst pressure ridges and huge crevasses, 14 miles from Cloudmaker or Mid-Glacier Depot. We hoped next day to reach this depot. January the 16th was a pleasant day, its ending peaceful, with a sufficiency of excellent sledging rations and the promise of a similar day to succeed it. On this day, hopes had run high. Our clothes were dry, the weather mild and promising, besides which we were camped in the full satisfaction of having a good many miles in hand. We cheerfully discussed our arrival at the next depot, after which we knew that no anxieties need be felt. Given even moderately good luck and weather, that did not include too great a proportion of blizzard days. The musical roar of the primus and the welcome smell of the cooking pemmican whetted our appetites deliciously, and as the three of us sat around the cooker on our rolled-up fur bags, the contented expression on our dirty brown faces made our bearded ugliness almost handsome. We built wonderful castles in the air as to what luxuries Lashley, who was a famous cook, could prepare on our return to winter quarters. There we had still more, some of the New Zealand beef and mutton stored in my glacier cave. And one thing I had set my heart on was a steak and kidney pudding 
which my friend Lashley swore to make me. After the meal, we unrolled our sleeping bags and anxiously got into them, for the recent fine weather had given us a chance to dry thoroughly the fur and to get the bags clear of that uncomfortable clamminess due to the moisture from our bodies freezing until the sleeping bags offered but little comfort. The weather looked glorious. There was not a cloud in the sky, and towards ten o'clock the sun was still visible to the south-southwest. We could see it through the thin green canvas tent wall as we turned in, still in broad daylight, and the warmth derived from it made sleep come to us quite easily. I woke at five the next morning, and rousing my companions we were up and about in a minute. The primer stove and cooking apparatus were brought into the tent once more. Our sleeping footgear was changed for our marching finisco and good steel-spiked crampons fixed to the soft fur to give us grip in places where the ice was blue and slippery. By 6am the little green tent was struck, the sledge was securely packed and the three of us commenced a day's march, the details of which, although it occurred over nine years ago, are so fresh in my memory that I have not even to refer to my sledging diary. We commenced the day unluckily, for a low stratus cloud had spread like a tablecloth over the Beardmore and filled up the glacier with mist. This added tremendously to our difficulties in steering, for we had no landmarks by which to steer our course, although I knew the approximate direction of descent and could make this by means of a somewhat inadequate compass. The refinements in steering were not sufficient to keep us on the good blue ice surface which we could have threaded our way through had we commanded a full view of the glacier. Our route led us over rougher ice than we should normally have chosen, and the outlook was distinctly displeasing. The air was thick with countless myriads of tiny floating ice crystals, and the great hummocks of ice stood weirdly shapen as they loomed through the frozen mist. I appreciated that we were getting into trouble, but hoped that the fog would disperse as the sun increased its altitude. We fell about a good deal, and to my consternation the surface became worse and worse. We were, however, covering distance in an approximately northward direction, and our team achieved with stubborn purpose what would not have appeared possible to us when we first visited this great white silent continent. It was no good going back, and we could not tell whether the good track was to the right or to the left of our line of advance. As new and more troublesome obstacles presented themselves, the more valiantly did my companions set themselves to win through. Crean and Lashley had the hearts of lions. The uncertain light of the mist worried us all three, and we were forced to take off our goggles to see and to advance at all. We continued until midday, when to my great relief the mist showed signs of dispersing, and the sun, a sickly yellow orb, eventually showed through. It was surrounded by a halo which was reflected in rainbow colouring in the minute floating ice crystals. I looked round for a spot suitable for camping, for we were pretty well exhausted, and it was worth a while waiting for the mist to disperse. No time would be wasted, since the halt would do for our lunch. With the greatest difficulty we found amongst the hummocky ice a place to set up our tent. A space was found somehow, and rather gloomily, the three of us made a cooker full of tea. We munched our biscuit in silence, for we were too tired to talk. From time to time I went outside the tent, and certainly the atmosphere was clearer. Odd shapes to the east and to the west showed themselves to be fringing mountains, 
which so few eyes had ever rested on. Gradually they took form, and I was able more or less to identify our whereabouts. We finished our lunch, Crean had a smoke, and then we got under way. A little discussion, a lot of support, and a wealth of whole-hearted good fellowship from my companions gave me the encouragements which made leading these two men so easy. Warmed by tea, cheered by meal, and rested by the halt, we pushed on once more, although to go forward was uncertain and to work back impossible, since we were too exhausted to do such pulling upward as would be necessary to reach a place from whence a new start could be made, even if we succeeded in rediscovering our night camp of yesterday. For hours we fought on, sometimes overcoming crevasses by bridging them with the sledge where its length enabled this to be done. The summer sun had cleared the snow from this part of the glacier, laying bare the great blue-black cracks they were horrible to behold. If the breadth of a crevasse was too large to be crossed, we worked along the bank until an ice bridge presented itself along which we could go. As the sun's rays grew more powerful, the visibility became perfect, and I must confess we were disappointed to see before us the most disheartening wilderness of pressure ridges and disturbances. We were in the heart of the great icefall, which is to be found halfway down the Beardmore Glacier. We struggled along, for there is no other expression which aptly describes our case. Had we not been in superb physical training and in really hard condition, all three of us must have collapsed. We literally carried the sledge, which weighed nearly 400 pounds. When the afternoon march had already extended for hours, we found ourselves travelling mile after mile across the line of our intended route to circumvent the crevasses. They seemed to grow bigger and bigger. At about 8pm we were travelling on a ridge between two stupendous open gulfs and we found a connecting bridge which stretched obliquely across. I saw that it was necessary to move round or across a number of these wide open chasms to reach the undulations which we knew from our ice experience must terminate this broken up part of the glacier. In vain I told myself that these undulations could not be so far away. To cross by the connecting bridge which I have just spoken about was, to say the least of it, a precarious proceeding. But it would save us a mile or two, and in our tired state this was worth considering. After a minute's rest, we placed the sledge on this ice bridge, and as Crean described it afterwards, we went along the crossbar to the H of Hell. It was not misnamed, either, for Lashley, who went ahead, dared not walk upright. He actually sat astride the bridge and was paid out at the end of an alpine rope. He shuffled his way across, fearful to look down into the inky blue chasm below. But he fixed his eyes on the opposite wall of ice and hoped the rope would be long enough to allow him to reach it and to climb up, for he never would have dared to come back. The cord was sufficient in length, and he contrived finally to make his way to the top of the ridge before him. He then turned round and looked scaredly at Crean and myself. I think all of us felt the tension of the moment, but we wasted no time in commencing the passage. The method of procedure was this. The sledge rested on the narrow bridge, which was indeed so shaped that the crest only admitted of the runners resting one on each side of it. The slope away was like an inverted V, and while Lashley sat gingerly on the opposite ridge, 
hauling carefully but not too strongly on the rope. Crean and I, facing one another, held on to the sledge sides, balancing the whole concern. It was one of the most exciting moments of our lives. We launched the sled across foot by foot as I shouted, One, two, three, heave! Each time the signal was obeyed, we got nearer to the opposite ice slope. The balance was preserved, of course, by Crean and myself, and we had to exercise a most careful judgment. Neither of us spoke, except for the launching signal, but each looked steadfastly into the other's eyes. Nor did we two look down. A false movement might have precipitated the whole gang and the sledge itself into the blue-black space of awful depth beneath. The danger was very real, but this crossing was necessary to our final safety. As in other cases of peril, the tense quiet of the moment left its mark on our memories, on every member of the party. Little absurd details attracted all our attention. For instance, I noticed the ruts in the cheeks of my grimy vis-a-vis, for Crean had recently clipped his beard and whiskers. My gaze was also riveted on a cut, or rather an open crack caused in one of his lips by the combined sun and wind. Thousands of little fleeting thoughts chased one another through our brains, as we afterwards found by comparison. And finally we were so close to Lashley that he could touch the sledge. He reached down, for the bridge was depressed somewhat where it met the slope on which he sat. And now it's dreaming time. From the rear of one great temple stretched a low black passage which Carter followed far into the rock with a torch until he came to a lightless domed hall of vast proportions, whose vaultings were covered with demoniac carvings, and in whose centre yawned a foul and bottomless well, like that in the hideous monastery of Leng, where broods alone the high priest not to be described. On the distant, shadowy side, beyond the noisome well, he thought he discerned a small door of strangely wrought bronze, but for some reason he felt an unaccountable dread of opening it, or even of approaching it, and hastened back through the cavern to his unlovely allies as they shambled about with an ease and abandon he could scarcely feel. The ghouls had observed the unfinished pastimes of the moon beasts, and had profited in their fashion. They'd also found a hogshead of potent moon wine, and were rolling it down to the wharves for removal and for later use in diplomatic dealings, though the rescued trio, remembering its effect on them in Dilathleen, had warned their company to taste none of it. Of rubies from lunar mines there was a great store, both rough and polished in one of the vaults near the water. But when the ghouls found they were not good to eat, they lost all interest in them. Carter did not try to carry away any, since he knew too much about those which had mined them. Suddenly there came an excited meeping from the sentries on the wharves, and all the loathsome foragers turned from their tasks to stare seaward and cluster round at the waterfront. Betwixt the grey headlands a fresh black galley was rapidly advancing, and it would be but a moment before the almost humans on deck would perceive the invasion of the town and give the alarm to the monstrous things below. Fortunately, the ghouls still bore the spears and javelins which Carter had distributed amongst them, 
and at his command, sustained by the being that was Pickman, they now formed a line of battle and prepared to prevent the landing of the ship. Presently, a burst of excitement on the galley told of the crew's discovery of the changed state of things, and the instant stoppage of the vessel proved that the superior numbers of ghouls had been noted and taken into account. After a moment of hesitation, the newcomers silently turned and passed out between the headlands again. But not for an instant did the ghouls imagine that the conflict was averted. Either the dark ship would seek reinforcements, or the crew would try to land elsewhere on the island. Hence a party of scouts was at once sent up towards the pinnacle to see what the enemy's course would be. In a very few minutes the ghoul returned breathless to say that the moon beasts and the almost humans were landing on the outside of the more easterly of the rugged grey headlands and ascending by hidden paths and ledges which a goat could scarcely tread in safety. Almost immediately afterward the galley was sighted again through the flume-like strait, but only for a second, and then a few moments later a second messenger panted down from aloft to say that another party was landing on the other headland, both being much more numerous than the size of the galley would seem to allow for. The ship itself, moving slowly and with only one sparsely manned tier of oars, soon hove in sight betwixt the cliffs, and lay in to the fetid harbour as if to watch the coming fray, and stand by for any possible use. By this time Carter and Pickman had divided the ghouls into three parties, one to meet each of the two invading columns, and one to remain in town. The first two at once scrambled up the rocks in their respective directions, whilst the third was subdivided into a land party and a sea party. The sea party, commanded by Carter, boarded the anchored galley, and rowed out to meet the undermanned galley of the newcomers, whereat the latter retreated through the strait to the open sea. Carter did not at once pursue it, for he knew he might be needed more acutely near the town. Meanwhile the frightful detachments of the moonbeasts and almost humans had lumbered up to the top of the headlands, and were shockingly silhouetted on either side against the grey twilight sky. The thin, hellish flutes of the invaders had now begun to whine, and the general effect of these hybrid half-amorphous processions was as nauseating as the actual odour given off by the toad-like lunar blasphemies. Then the two parties of the ghouls swarmed into sight and joined the silhouetted panorama. Javelins began to fly from both sides, and the swelling meeps of the ghouls and the bestial howls of the almost humans gradually joined the hellish whine of the flutes to form a frantic and indescribable chaos of daemon cacophony. Now and then, bodies fell from the narrow ridges of the headlands into the sea outside, or into the harbour inside, in the latter case being sucked quickly under by certain submarine lurkers, whose presence was indicated only by prodigious bubbles. For half an hour this dual battle raged in the sky till upon the west cliff the invaders were completely annihilated. On the east cliff, however, where the leader of the moonbeast party appeared to be present, the ghouls had not fared so well, and were slowly retreating to the slopes of the pinnacle proper. Pickman had quickly ordered reinforcements for this front from the party in the town, and these had helped greatly in the earlier stages of the combat. 
Then, when the Western battle was over, the victorious survivors hastened across to the aid of their hard-pressed fellows, turning the tide and forcing the invaders back along the narrow ridge of the headland. The almost humans were by this time all slain, but the last of the toad-like horrors fought desperately with the great spears clutched in their powerful and disgusting paws. The time for javelins was now nearly past, and the fight became a hand-to-hand contest of what few spearmen could meet upon that narrow ridge. As fury and recklessness increased, the number falling into the sea became very great. Those striking the harbour met nameless extinction from the unseen bubblers, but of those striking the open sea, some were able to swim to the foot of the cliffs and to land on tidal rocks, while the hovering galley of the enemy rescued several moonbeasts. The cliffs were unscalable except where the monsters had debarked, so that none of the ghouls on the rocks could rejoin their battle line. Some were killed by javelins from the hostile galley, or from moonbeasts above, but a few survived to be rescued. When the security of the land parties seemed assured, Carter's galley sallied forth between the headlands and drove the hostile ship far out to sea, pausing to rescue such ghouls as were on the rocks or still swimming in the ocean. Several moonbeasts, washed on rocks or reefs, were speedily put out of the way. Finally, the moonbeast galley, being safely in the distance and of the invading land army concentrated in one place, Carter landed a considerable force on the eastern headland in the enemy's rear, after which the fight was short-lived indeed. Attacked from both sides, the noisome flounderers were rapidly cut to pieces or pushed into the sea, till by evening the ghoulish chiefs had agreed that the island was again clear of them. The hostile galley, meanwhile, had disappeared and it was decided that the evil jagged rock had better be evacuated before any overwhelming horde of lunar horrors might be assembled and brought against the victors. So by night, Pickman and Carter assembled all the ghouls and counted them with care, finding that over a fourth had been lost in the day's battles. The wounded were placed on bunks in the galley, for Pickman always discouraged the old ghoulish custom of killing and eating one's own wounded and the able-bodied troops were assigned to the oars, or to such other places as they might most usefully fill. Under the low phosphorescent clouds of night, the galley sailed, and Carter was not sorry to be departing from the island of unwholesome secrets, whose lightless domed hall, with its bottomless well and its repellent bronze door, lingered restlessly in his fancy. Dawn found the ship in sight of Sarkoman's ruined keys of basalt where a few night-gaunt sentries still waited, squatting like black-horned gargoyles on the broken columns and the crumbling sphinxes of that fearful city, which lived and died before the years of man. The ghouls made camp amongst the fallen stones of Sarkomand, dispatching a messenger for enough night-gaunts to serve them as steeds. Pickman and the other chiefs were effusive in their gratitude for the aid of Carter that it lent to them. Carter now began to feel that his plans were indeed maturing well, and that he would be able to command the help of these fearsome allies not only in quitting this part of Dreamland, but in pursuing his ultimate quest for the gods atop unknown Kadath, and that marvellous sunset city they so strangely withheld from his slumbers. Accordingly, he spoke of these things to the ghoulish leaders, 
telling what he knew of the cold waste wherein Kadath stands, and of the monstrous Shantax, and the mountains carven into double-headed images which guard it. He spoke of the fear of Shantax for nightgorns, and how the vast hippocelophaic birds fly screaming from the black burrows high up on the gaunt grey peaks that divide Iquanoch from hateful Leng. He spoke too of the things he had learned concerning night gaunts from the frescoes in the windowless monastery of the high priest not to be described, how even the great ones fear them, and how their ruler is not the crueling chaos of Nyarlathotep at all, but hoary and immemorial Nodens, lord of the great abyss. All these things Carter glibbered to the assembled ghouls, and presently outlined that request which he had in mind, and which he did not think extravagant, considering the services he had so lately rendered the rubbery dog-like lopers. He wished very much, he said, for the services of enough night-gaunts to bear him safely through aft past the realm of Shantax and Carven Mountains, and up into the old waste beyond the returning tracks of any other mortal. He desired to fly to the Onyx Castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste, to plead with the Great Ones for the Sunset City that they denied him, and felt sure that the Nightgaunts could take him thither without trouble. High above the perils of the plain, and over that hideous double heads of those carven sentinel mountains that squat eternally in the grey dusk, for the horned and faceless creatures there could be no danger from aught of earth, since the Great Ones themselves dread them and even were unexpected things to come from the other gods who are prone to oversee the affairs of Earth's milder gods, the night-gaunts need not fear, for the outer hells are indifferent matters to such silent and slippery flyers as their own, not Nilathrotep for their master, but bow only to potent and archaic nodens. A flock of ten or fifteen night-gaunts, Carter glibbered, would surely be enough to keep any combination of Shantax at a distance, though, perhaps, it might be well to have some ghouls in the party to manage the creatures, their ways being better known to their ghoulish allies than to men. The party could land him at some convenient point within or whatever walls that fabulous onyx citadel might have, waiting in the shadows for his return or his signal whilst he ventured inside the castle to give prayer to the gods of earth. If any ghouls chose to escort him into the throne room of the Great Ones, he would be thankful, for their presence would add weight and importance to his plea. He would not, however, insist upon this, but merely wished transportation to and from the castle atop unknown Kadath, the final journey being either to the marvellous sunset city itself, in case of gods proved favourable, or back to the earthward gate of deeper slumber, in the enchanted wood in Casey's prayers were fruitless. Whilst Carter was speaking, all the ghouls listened with great attention, and as the moments advanced the sky became black with clouds of those night-gaunts for which messengers had been sent. The winged steeds settled in a semicircle around the ghoulish army, waiting respectfully as the dog-like chieftains considered the wish of the earthly traveller. The ghoul that was Pickman, glibbered gravely with his fellows, and in the end Carter was offered far more than he had at most expected. 
As he had aided the ghouls in their conquest of the moon beasts, so would they aid him in his daring voyage to realms whence none had ever returned, lending him not merely a few of their allied nightgaunts, but their entire army, as then encamped, veteran fighting ghouls and newly assembled nightgaunts alike, save only a small garrison for the captured black galley and such spoils as had come from the jagged rock in the sea. They would set out through the aft whenever he might wish, and once arrived on Kadath, a suitable train of ghouls would attend him in state as he placed his petition before Earth's gods in their onyx castle. Moved by a gratitude and a satisfaction beyond words, Carter made plans with the ghoulish leaders for his audacious voyage. The army would fly high, they decided, over hideous Leng with its nameless monastery and wicked stone villages, stopping only at the vast grey peaks to confer with the Shantak frightening night gorns, whose burrows honeycombed their summits. They would then, according to what advice they might receive from those denizens, choose their final course, approaching unknown Kadath either through the desert of Carven Mountains north of Equinoch, or through the more northerly reaches of repulsive Leng itself. Dog-like and soulless as they are, the ghouls and night-gaunts had no dread of what those untrodden deserts might reveal, nor did they feel any deterring awe at the thought of Kadath, towering lone with its onyx castle of mystery. About midday, the ghouls and night-gaunts prepared for flight, each ghoul selecting a suitable pair of horned steeds to bear him. Carter was placed well up towards the head of the column beside Pickman, and in front of the hole a double line of riderless night-gaunts was provided as a vanguard. At a brisk meep from Pickman, the whole shocking army rose in a nightmare cloud above the broken columns and the crumbling sphinxes of primordial sarcomand. Higher and higher, till even the great basalt cliff behind the town was cleared, and the cold, sterile tableland of Leng's outskirts laid open to sight. Still higher flew the black host, till even this tableland grew small beneath them, and as they worked northward over the windswept plateau of horror, Carter saw once again, with a shudder, the circle of crude monoliths and the squat, windowless buildings which he knew held that frightful silken mask blasphemy, from whose clutches he had so narrowly escaped. This time, no descent was made as the army swept bat-like over the sterile landscape, passing the feeble fires of the unwholesome stone villages at a great altitude, and pausing not at all to mark the morbid twistings of the hooved horned almost humans that dance and pipe eternally therein. Once they saw a Shantak bird flying low over the plain, but when it saw them, it screamed noxiously and flapped off to the north in grotesque panic. At dusk, they reached the jagged grey peaks that form the barrier of Iquanok, and hovered about these strange caves near the summits which Carter recalled as so frightful to the Shantaks. At the insistent meeping of the ghoulish leaders, they issued forth from each lofty burrow, a stream of horned black flyers, from which the ghouls and night-gaunts of the party conferred at length by means of ugly gestures. It soon became clear that the best course would be over the old cold wastes of Iquanok, for Leng's northward reaches are full of unseen pitfalls that even the night-gaunts dislike. 
abysmal influences centering in a certain white hemispherical building on curious knolls, which common folklore associates unpleasantly with the outer gods and with their crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep. Of Kadath, the flutterers of the peaks knew almost nothing, save that there might be some mighty marvel towards the north over which the Shantaks and the Carven Mountains stand guard. They hinted at rumoured abnormalities of proportion in those trackless leagues beyond, and recalled vague whispers of a realm where night broods eternally. But of definite data they had nothing to give. So Carter and his party thanked them kindly, and crossing the topmost granite pinnacles to the skies of Iquanoc, dropped below the level of the phosphorescent night clouds, and beheld in the distance those terrible squatting gargoyles that were mountains, until some titan hand had carved fright into their virgin rock. There they squatted, in a hellish half-circle, their legs on the desert sand and their mitres piercing the luminous clouds, sinister, wolf-like, and double-headed, with faces of fury and right hands raised, dully and malignly watching the rim of man's world and guarding with horror the reaches of a cold northern world that is not man's. From their hideous laps rose evil shantaks of elephantine bulk, and these all fled with insane titters as the vanguard of nightgaunts were sighted in the misty sky. Northward, above the gargoyle mountains, the army flew, and over leagues of dim desert where never a landmark rose, less and less luminous grew the clouds, till at length, Carter could only see blackness around him. And never did the winged steeds falter, bred as they were in earth's blackest crypts, and seeing not with any eyes, but with the whole dank surface of their slippery forms. On and on they flew, past winds of dubious scent and sounds of dubious import, ever in thickest darkness, and covering such prodigious spaces that Carter wondered whether or not they could still be within Earth's dreamland. And that's all for today, except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of the Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US government's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. I'm also currently rushing a recording of the recent US government report known as the Durham Report, which covers the bad behaviour of the FBI during the 2016 investigation of President Trump. If you're interested in any of that, please go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick, as F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time.